I know it's kind of meta to a degree, but it seems that a requirement of all podcasters is to every now and again talk about other podcasters or podcasting or the the field. Are you are you still listening to podcasts of uh, other than Triloquy? Are you, are you having? Do you have personal podcast listening? I do. Um, I've been listening to Al Franken's a little bit lately, but also uh, they're on episode number two of a new podcast I found called More Sauce. Hmm. Uh, diverse conversations through black through a black lens. Oh, interesting. So they're only on the second episode. So I'm interested to be there at the ground floor. Well, uh, in addition to those, were you ever a Jesus uh, Amaro listener? Did you ever listen to uh, make not, it to that one? Not with regularity, but <laughs> but I dipped in every once in a while because I knew him from TV. Well, so it's uh, it's very sad. I, I just feel uh, obligated to mention that they're whole partnership is no more. I'm going to mm-hmm. give it a flat. Uh, if you don't know who Jesus and uh, Mero are, they were a very successful uh, comedy duo, started on social media, made it all the way to uh, Showtime, having a having a evening special, and, and now it's no more. I'm just going to read a little bit here from uh, Vulture. It says, the kid Mero spoke publicly about the end of Showtime's Jesus and Mero and parting ways with Jesus Nice for the first time on his weekly Twitch stream. Um, it's just a natural progression, Mero explained. It's like we said on the podcast. It's Hollywood, baby. You develop strengths and things that you want to explore and do, and then things just happen naturally. It's like Spike Jones said on the Viceland show, everything is finite. What's the corny cliche? Don't be sad that it's gone. Be happy that you experienced it. I, I mentioned this because um, among the you know few, not many, but the few podcasts that have in part inspired aspects of Triloquy, uh, the Jesus Amira podcast was definitely one. I'm, I think back to the Viceland show about um, how that's why I decided to start paying for cable. You know, I'm one of these mm-hmm. few people out here still paying, you know, throwing this money out the window. But I wanted to make sure that I had, Vi- the channel was then called Viceland, to watch, you know, what, what they had to put together. What, um, what, aspect of, what, what aspect of their show is influential for you? For me, it's, uh, well, as far as Triloquy, it's, you know, some of these sounds here <laughs> where it's fired by. Okay. Jesus uh, okay. uh, Romero, not not that one. I, I, I'll, I won't tell you which one, but one of them was definitely directly inspired by um, that that podcast. And a lot of people have been having different conversations about, you know, this breakup, you know, in in this, in a similar way, I think that we talk about band breakups and, and music breakups. People have been talking about this one. You know, we know the real reason there was a management dispute. Somebody wanted to keep the management. Somebody didn't. But mm. um, typically the thing to sort of uh, assume is that money was somehow weird. And, yeah. and that's how arguments, you know, came up. Um in the projects and the big projects that you've done collaboratively, I'm thinking mainly about the Shelter Belt Theater. Nobody was getting paid. And there had to have been some financial conversations going on. Or or, or did y'all break up? Or was there ever a, a blow up that led to a, a potential breakup? Were there ever any of those moments? Usually the fights there were over who you were dating or oh, who so you y'all had the, rom- the, right. rom- the romantic. Right. Because the theater company, you know, a, a lot of people treated it like 
you know, it was incestuous. You know, it was just you you would date whoever you were in a show with. And y'all were young, you know. Right. <laughs> Younger, so, I'll say. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, as folks continue to talk about this and especially us in podcast world, I was kind of thinking there have to be some famous band breakups that yeah. really impacted you. I don't really have there is some of that in my lifetime, but none that were felt as big as a, a podcast breakup or, or or a show breakup, the sort of things that happen these days. What's your what's your music breakup or some sort of breakup that comes to mind for you? Um, immediately the one comes to mind is nineteen eighty four when the police split up. And they split up because, you know, Sting was able to go on. He was getting, mo the front man was getting mo most of the attention. Mm. And so. Sting was the front man. Sting was the front man. And he sang and played bass. He was their primary composer. But uh, Stuart Copeland on drums, he was raised uh, in the Middle East. His father was in the CIA. So his his sense of rhythm was wildly different than any other band was bringing out. Mm -hmm. And Andy Summers on guitar. Uh, I, I think a lot of people sleep on him some, but he was an amazing guitarist too. Um, and there was just no secret that there was always infighting. They were always duking it out over something. It's not like though that they weren't successful. The The concerts were being sold. They you broke know, up they at were, their peak. So where do you, where does one, where should one draw the line? I'm thinking about Deezus Amaro, you know, you're mentioning the police. If the mission is to make money, and that's it. Uh, you know, there's not a whole bunch I can say about that. But mm -hmm. if the music or the project is supposed to be reaching an audience or inspiring a people or, you know, it seems like there has to be some sacrifice made on the personal side. OK, let's put these things to the side so that we can continue the project or work through this disagreement. But I, I guess, I mean, clearly things come to a head. Sure. Eventually. Yeah. And, you know, it's no secret that Sting has an ego and, you know, a certain level of arrogance and uh, probably had enough, let's just say he had enough courage at that point to say that he could go off and do his own thing solo and not have to mess around with whatever Andy and Stuart thought. We don't have a whole bunch of that in the Western classical world. There definitely aren't duo sort of radio shows and in, in classical radio like there are in other genres no, i no. guess maybe we can think of some of uh, orchestral chamber duos but i mean how famous really are they i'm not even you know yes there are the imani winds and the third coast percussion and, and all of these groups but i guess the the duo aspect there are some i'm just not thinking of them but yeah me neither but i wonder what that would mean for you know the classical industry to have to, you know, think about that. Think about what it looks like for, you know, famous duos to break up. It's it seems like a completely different conversation. At least something that we aren't really uh, dealing with yet. Maybe if one of the, you know, Connie Masons decided to mm -hmm. <laughs> go, you know, go, go solo around, yeah. and yeah, and 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 do something else, become a, a rock star or a punk star that, or something. That's that, a good, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> that's a good point because I immediately thought of uh, the Jacobsons. You know, the brothers that are in the Knights. Oh right. You know, what if some dust up happened there? Mm -hmm, and that was know. the thing. But I'm not really even all that familiar with them. I guess you know, classical has a has an advantage in that it is more collective when we talk about orchestras and 
audiences as a as a group you know there's there's more of a collective thing and less risk of you know one relationship between two individuals breaking down a whole a whole project and a whole or even just one thing. person breaking down a whole project sure sure makes you think about this show does it i wonder <laughs> you know when the when the half million dollar underwriter comes through when's that i promise i'll tell you when's that <laughs> or maybe i shouldn't see you you don't you don't seem to be like really you know believing that that can be a thing i didn't believe that <laughs> podcasting would be a thing well you know my goal always if, if there's anything you know just re- to return and and circle back to get us going here um you know marrow in this interview quoted spike jones who you know was one of the um founders of Viceland, how he used to always say everything is finite. That was even one of the bumpers in the, on the station at that point. They would say even this building where we have this radio, of uh, this radio, this TV station, you know, one day it won't be that. One day this building will be used for something else. So, you know, when we think about the, the finite nature of things, for me, it fires me up even more. You know, I'm not always going to have a microphone. I'm not always going to have a platform and folks willing to spend a couple hours listening to us every week. So Mm. I have to make sure that I'm really saying something. I have to make sure that uh, I'm really, you know, inspiring you to, to say something. Because when this thing ends, whenever that happens, it'll be over. But we have it now. So we have to try to engage the conversations as much as we can and be as bold in those conversations as we can be. You would tell me about a half million dollar contract. You would. Let's right? get started. I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy, Opus 159. Thank you so much for returning to this week's Opus of the Triloquy podcast. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out Triloquy, Triloquy is a podcast, first of all, that happens after dinner, so I have a lot of deep breaths, so I'm not (laughs) belching it to the microphone, but it's also a podcast built to decolonize the phrase classical music. What do we mean by that? Well, we take that phrase and we approximate it to pieces of music, to conversations, and to general dialogue that hasn't always been associated with that phrase, but that we associate with it toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing classical music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, visit triloquy.org. You can check out past opuses and donate there and uh, learn a little bit more about the show and the folks who help make it possible. In addition to your support, Triloquy is sponsored in part by the Shuttleworth Foundation at the shuttleworthfoundation.org. Shout out to Springboard for the Arts here in St. Paul for uh, their continued support. I want to shout out the Lakes Area Music Festival for having me um, all summer, including this week. I'll be up in Brainerd. So if you're listening to this from Brainerd, be sure to come by the front of the stage and say, hello after the show i'll uh I'll, I'll tell you what i thought about the concert which i'm sure will be phenomenal shout out to everybody up there at the lakes area music festival shout out for you to checking out this show let's jump into movement one so scott we spent i don't know last week or the week before last so i i spent uh the the intro anyway complaining about the money spent for these telescopes and looking out into space yep. and you know how Gil Scott here and said Whitey on the moon. Yep. And of course, you know, 
somebody has made a piece of music about what they heard in well, space. The, it's like you expect it. The reason why <laughs> the reason why I wanted to bring this in and give it a natural is uh, because you know obviously there's a natural. There, there's it, obviously it was going to happen. Yep. I was inevitable. Yep. And I think that this would be a great piece to put on with the cat concerto that we talked about a few seasons ago. <laughs> And we compare that with the uh, Sonata for Two Chairs. And and you've got an evening. Now, there's, a, there's an audience for that. <laughs> now, I guess we're kind of going through my emotional response to this because, of course, I roll my eyes. So we, we, don't, we can't have equity. We, we can't hire the black uh, conductors and the black commission, the black composers, but we can take sounds from space and make a piece of music. You know, it's easy for me to jump on that. But when I was reading a little bit more about this, my heart was softened a little bit. Oh, what happened? I'm, I'm, I want to give the people a little bit of this. This is from WGBH.org. It says, when the world stopped in awe last week to gaze at the photos released from the James Webb Space Telescope, the snapshots accomplished a challenging feat. They made astronomy accessible to the general public. Black Hole Symphony performance at the Museum of Science this summer uh, does the same thing, bringing the science of the universe to everyday listeners through music. So uh, what uh, composer and conductor David Ibbett has done is create sounds inspired by the sounds captured by this telescope. The fact that it happens in a planetarium is what sort of softened my heart a little yeah. bit. I went to a high school, shout out to Craig, my high school, um, and we had a planetarium. And I remember really? going there as a kindergartner, you know, feeling like I'm in this huge space. And of course, as you get older, you know, there's a big difference between your perception of a planetarium, or maybe, or maybe a hundred seat uh, planetarium from when you're six years old to when you're 18 years old, graduating high school. So I feel like I saw this space sort of shrink as I got older, you know, going sure. to school and we would have sometimes just guest speakers and that just happened to be where we would do the thing. And, you know, it seems like the that magic is lost at a certain time, going to a planetarium and and seeing, you know, that sure. for the for the first time even as an adult it can it can be a really interesting thing to do much less when you're a kid so i'm only imagining all of that to say that magic that can be happened just visually when that's matched with live musicians that is an experience that i can't completely just sleep on that is that this is a thing that has been done here wouldn't wouldn't you be just a little bit curious as to what they came up with of course, what it sounds I'm, like. I, I just got done saying I, I can't sleep on it. I'm well. That's what I'm trying to get at is not to sleep on it. But um, I see what you're saying though about uh, planetariums and all that. And the only reason why I brought it in and it sparked my interest is because I knew that I would get the reaction from you that I did, and I haven't seen that face from you in a while <laughs> because so, I've been in a positive attitude. That's right. But see, but see, we're still positive here with, with this piece of music. Now, if it were the Met. Or the New York Philharmonic or the Chicago Symphony or the Cleveland Symphony projecting something on the wall and playing this piece of music. And it's it's that. I, I feel like I would mm. feel a little mm -hmm. bit different. But the fact that this is happening okay. in a planetarium, I think for me, makes the difference because in the same way that that space is accessible as, you know, intellectually accessible, no one is left behind being in awe about, you know, the images of these stars and planets, you know, on the curved ceiling in the same way that that's accessible. I think creating some accessibility to chamber music, 
through that experience is notable. Mm. It's, it's, it's a, a decent investment. It is. In my opinion. Uh, just um, a, a little bit uh, more from this before we listen to a little bit of it and uh, and move on. Uh, it says here, James Monroe, senior producer of adult programs and theater experiences. Uh, I, uh, this is at the museum. Said he was excited to bring accessible science to a wide range of people, especially in light of the photos just released by NASA's telescope. It makes us cool, Monroe said from the recent astronomical breakthrough. I think that's what's really exciting about discoveries like that and groundbreaking research because the general public realizes, oh my gosh, science is all around us and it's cool and it's interesting. And so it's always a victory for us when stuff like that happens. I'm sitting here thinking positively about this thing. I still feel away about billions of dollars being shot up into space and left there. So mm-hmm. Again, we don't mm-hmm. talk a, a, enough about the space litter. Yeah, a big hunk <laughs> of it just fell to Earth a couple of days ago, you remember, mm-hmm. from uh, some Chinese expedition, I so, think it was. So, yeah. so there is that. And matching these things with music toward accessibility is something that I accept to a degree, especially considering how cool this piece of music sounds. Here's a little bit uh, from the piece of music uh, written by the composer here, David Ibbett, uh, a bit of the fourth movement of his Black Hole Symphony. This is also a good piece of music to give a, a quick shout out and a rest in peace to Nichelle Nichols, uh, who played yep. Uhura on Star Trek. She died yesterday and uh, really just a, a groundbreaking actress. You know, Star Trek was uh, taking themes that we should have been talking about out in the world and putting it in space and then on television. Yeah. And we talked about Nichelle Nichols' music here on Troloquy before. I, for, right. I forget the the name of the piece of music, but I mean, you know, I, I think at last time we talked about her, uh, I told the story about how Dr. Martin Luther King said, "No, sister, you got to stay on this show because yeah. she she wanted to go and do a le- so called legit theater." But Martin Luther King Jr. was like, "No, this is your job." <laughs> <laughs> but and 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 yeah. look what she gave us. Black folks had a reason. So look at this, you know, that show, um, as you said, there were certain conversations that were inspired from it. You know, we had the first, uh, wasn't that the first interracial kiss mm-hmm. on, on TV, you know, the so first was... inter- interterrestrial kiss as well. <laughs> sure. Sure. So, you know, there, there's a lot of shout out to, uh, Nichelle Nichols and, uh, shout out to, um, the black hole symphony by David Ibbett. Let's just get down to it. It's the percussion that makes this piece challenging in traditional spaces and so-called traditional spaces, right? It's the fact that there's some electronics going on in right. there. Um, we got to get there with the electronics. You know, that this conversation is happening a lot on the other side of my work. You know, it's, it's common and it's, you know, uh, commonly accepted. I should say that when a composer wants to write a piece of music, there's going to be strings. There's going to be so many of each wind. There's going to be some percussion. At, At what point do we open up the doors for the loop machine, for the, um, electronics? And I, and I know that 
we have to talk about, you know, who those individuals are. And, you know, especially in these big orchestras with unions and, and hiring rules and, and all of right. that sort of thing. But that that's one of the next big steps I think we have to get to um, across the entire industry, just completely normalizing the use of any sort of electronic, especially if we talk about 808s and infusing orchestral music and hip hop. Mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. just the it's just the next instrument. There weren't always, I mean, and let's even go back to um the the Western Europe centered music history. There weren't always uh flutes and clarinets in orchestras. You know, in, in some of those early symphonies, think back to your Vivaldi we're nerding out here, but think back to your Vivaldi symphonies. There were strings there was harpsichord and there would be bassoon, um, mm -hmm. you know, and basically that's it. So at one point someone added the flute at some point one somebody decided to add a trombone and a tuba, you know, and a piccolo. So it's time. It's time to add some more of of those instruments. And, mm. you know, once we can get over that sort of fear of something having a little bit of a flavor to it. We can we can open the door to more music like like what that is this, this black hole symphony. <laughs> <laughs> I used to work for. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna say this and we're gonna move on. I used to work for um, a school, and one of the band directors um, used to yell at the and this was a white man. He used to get his uh, bullhorn, and when it came time for choreography, he used to tell them to fight the white. <laughs> Oof! And I would be quiet. <laughs> I was I was sit down because ain't no, none of the parents gonna gonna be in my inbox anyway. <laughs> shout out to Mumford, Tennessee, and uh, we're gonna move on to this next accidental. I have two this week, and I'm gonna try to keep them short. Uh, the first one I'm gonna give I'm gonna give this a, a natural, just like you gave that a natural. I'm reading here from the New York Times. The it says Minnesota Orchestra names Thomas Sundergaard as music director. Okay, when I heard this news. The name Thomas Sondergaard had all of the um, European uh, affects. What do you even call the the way that? <laughs> yeah, what do you call tremors it? Tremors and um, you know, apostrophes, um, umlauts, made, you strikeouts. Know, you know and, those, yeah. those symbols. So yeah. I was like, okay, so we had Osma Vanska. We're going to move on to another Northern European conductor. Mm -hmm. I don't want to revisit last week's conversation. But I do think it's aligned in a certain way when it comes to the opportunities we have and what we choose to do. I'm sure Thomas Sundergaard is an incredible music director who will really engage the Minnesota Orchestra audience, which here in this part of the country has a specific affinity toward uh, the the Danish, the Finnish, the the this general Scandinavian vibe you know uh and an idea and, and all of that even in orchestral spaces i get all of that let's not pretend that they could have hired a woman or could have hired a person of color a black person that is something that could have happened so where do we where do we take the conversation is it just a oh well better luck next time is it oh well i'm sure that you know, no one was qualified. The talent isn't there. It's hard to stand firm in the convictions of equity in orchestral spaces, in Western classical music, and at the same time, give give the golf clap to the appointment of another European male to an American podium. Mm -hmm. Young man, too. Yeah. When I saw the notice go up on Twitter, 
Music Twitter was all a flutter over the handsomeness of the new maestro. They were going on and on about how attractive he is. Mm. Um, from the story that I read in the Star Tribune, uh, you know, we have friends of the podcast that play with the Minnesota Orchestra that also mm -hmm. gave him a favorable, favorable review. And the piece that I read in the Star Tribune, um, the 16-member panel interviewed or or worked with 60 different um possibilities mm -hmm. in the field and uh they said that it they were diverse in age gender and also uh maestro sundagar is uh, a gay man mm -hmm. so um there there's a positive do you think that this just might be what and and i'm probably going to take a hit for this uh, a transitional composer because we know or, conductor. Or a conductor because we know that w one of these orchestras is going to have to take the step is going to have to you know jump in the breach and and make the the big choice of a person of color or a woman like you said is it is it, a, <laughs> is it, a, is it a, you know yeah i only what am i making why am i, I making no, you laugh i only i only laugh because I just hear the people. Well, you can't please them anyway because we spent all last week talking about the uh, the the I did anyway talking about the black man hired to conduct Baltimore yes. who is you know I, I wish I had a some what what's the most English sound I have on this board I I, I don't I'm gonna give him the air horn because it's just gonna be celebrations today good you know um, shout out to to Maestro Jonathan Hayward and we had the conversation that. We had about that not being an example of steps toward decolonizing the art form. Okay. Somebody on that, I, I go back and forth because I can't help but to believe that somebody in that consortium of 60, one of those marginalized genders or I, general identities was qualified for the job. You aren't going to tell me that you can make it that far all the way up to having an audition time with the orchestra and not to some degree be qualified mm -hmm. for the job. You know, they mm -hmm. didn't they didn't have a hack up there on the podium. So somebody was somebody could do the job. And this is who was chosen at the end of the day. Shout out to the Minnesota Orchestra. You know, they give me a fair um, amount of uh, support and work, and I'm in I'm in the rooms when it comes to uh, certain programming. I, I appreciate many aspects of the Minnesota Orchestra. It's just difficult to ignore the obvious mm -hmm. that yes. an opportunity was had and an opportunity was missed. So, to what degree are you dedicated to? equity in your orchestra to diversifying uh, the orchestra. At the end of this um, uh, New York Times article, uh, it says, Sundergar starts as music director designate in the 22-23 season before formally stepping into the position in fall 2023. He'll adopt the group's missions, including helping the company weather the ongoing effects of the pandemic shutdown and diversifying both the ranks of the orchestra and of the composers whose music it plays. So there is at least a sentence that mm -hmm. acknowledge, acknowledges that topic. How much is it the orchestra's mission if hiring a, uh, a, a woman or a, or a person of color for this position, how, how dedicated to that I, mission are you? Right. If, if, if you didn't, if you didn't do it. I, I, I do see where you're coming from. I understand. 
Um, we're not going to know what the makeup of the field was, obviously. Um, and I can also point to a sentence in the Star Tribune article that I found where uh, he said that he is going to take the ideas of the musicians into account for programming and performance. Uh, and also a commitment to more service to the community. There was a quote about something, what is the community thirsty for? Um, I see what you're saying. I also see some positive, but at the same time, I agree in the respect that I would have liked to have seen the Minnesota Orchestra make a choice of a woman or person of color to put in charge. I mean, I would have really thought Minnesota's on the, is going to be on the right side of history on, on another issue. I agree with you. But as it says here, he's, he's going to pay attention to those issues and program accordingly. And, and as it says, their work to diversify the orchestra. So we'll see. I live here in Minnesota and I haven't subbed yet, <laughs> but I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably busy, especially to, for, for, for what I would be put on for. What would you a conduct? Schubert symphony? No, I'm not saying to conduct the orchestra. I'm saying just play in the bassoon oh, section. Okay. 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 You know that, I mean the St. Paul chamber orchestra had me, so I, I, I'm good enough for them. Anyway, right. this isn't about that. It's <laughs> okay. As long, as long as my point is heard. Shout out to Thomas Sondergaard. Best of luck with the hometown band. Excited to go see you conduct something black because that's what I'll come to the building for. Um, and the Minnesota Orchestra could have made a, a different decision. I would have liked Both to of have, those things can be true. I would have liked to have seen that. He has a, Thomas Sundergar has a number of performances um, online, and I browsed through a few of them. And I thought I would share um, his rendition of Prokofiev VI uh, with SWR Symphony Orchestra. I think it's really exciting sounding and could be a, a glimpse into what he'll bring to the Minnesota Orchestra. Here's a bit of that to get us to our final accident. You know, when we talk about marginalized composers and composers who deserve more time on the stage, it's hard to make a case for composers for Europe in that conversation. But a part of me feels that for Prokofiev to a degree, mm -hmm. everybody ran to Shostakovich when everyone was performatively in solidarity uh, with Ukraine. Uh, no shade, but shade. Mm -hmm. I felt like Prokofiev is who should have been there when we talk. And Shostakovich is one of my favorite uh, composers, but I don't know. I, I, I always enjoy seeing orchestras and conductors take on things like Prokofiev symphonies. Yes, we talk about Peter and the Wolf. Um, you know, the radio will play his piano stuff. Uh, but when it comes to just really digging into those symphonies, it's not something that happens every day. I, not, I, I encourage everyone to go yeah. to I encourage everyone to go um check out a Prokofiev symphony if you never have. Um other than the first one, you know, because that one was, you know, the oh the neoclassical the, 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 the colonized. Uh oh. <laughs> anyway. All Three right. oranges gets a lot of play. Yeah, oh yeah, I, I forgot about saying. that. Yeah. Uh anyway, I have one final accidental here that we could not record this week and speak to. Um it gets a, a flat and I'm gonna go ahead and um give it this Jesus and Marrow inspired <laughs> soundbite. Okay. 
It has to do with the Aspen Music Festival in Colorado. And really, most of the news surrounding it has been on social media. Um, uh, Natalie Joachim retweeted uh, something that that I saw, but uh, Joy Goodry uh, was posting about it. Basically, all of the young people who are on the ground and, and paying attention to issues of equity or lack thereof in orchestral music, they were going there. Long story short, the Aspen Music Festival was doing some sort of stage rendition of The Sound of Music, and pictures came out of the orchestra playing in front of Nazi banners. So for folks who may not know what The Sound of Music is or whatever, the story is basically about a family escaping uh, the encroaching influence of, of Nazi Germany in Austria specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a scene where a Nazi paraphernalia is torn down and, and, and it's, it's ripped up and all of that. So maybe that's what happened on stage at the Aspen music festival, but I can't confirm that because I wasn't there. And all I've seen is an orchestra playing with Nazi banners in the background. It's not a great look as a theater person. Is there a right way <laughs> to do that? Or do you just not even go there? Is there a way to depict Nazi paraphernalia being torn off the wall and torn up? And again, I don't know that that's what happened. I don't happened, even think that that needs I'm to be just, the focus of anything. But, but I'm, I'm just going on, if they're trying to redo what happened in the film, maybe even the uh, the play, it's, it doesn't seem like there is a way to no. do it without somebody getting that photo and it being out of context and out of context or not. It's just not a good look. We should not, you shouldn't be uh, flying rebel stuff in the theater. You shouldn't be flying Nazi paraphernalia. That's illegal in some countries in in Europe. There's not a right way to do it, and it shouldn't have been done. It's a semi-staged production of a suite from the music, right? Right. From the overall production. Well, when when they do uh, that sort of thing for um, Catfish Row, they don't get out. This the sets from Catfish Row well, because the music does that enough. But hey, and <laughs> you know, just name the show. Yeah, name name the opera or ballet or movie of your choice, and they don't do that there. Mm-hmm. There is no excuse for it. Disappointing, man. Disappointing. I mean, the only person that I saw write anything about it online. <laughs> oh, that reminds me, I have something to do this uh, article. Do this. Friday. I guarantee Maybe I'll write you, about they this. were not getting paid but, for the word. But on it that. was it was Norman Lebrecht, our friend, <laughs> our friend, not friend, over at Slip Disc. I'm going to read the entirety of his response. Um, he posts the photo. Um, and it says this was the uh, this is what the public saw in the sound of music at the Aspen Music Festival in the Benedict Music Tent on July 26. Shocked we are. Are you? So I'll pose that question to you, Scott. Are you shocked and Does, and disappointed? Shocked and disappointed. I am. I am as well. The orchestras have done a lot of stuff that I think is inappropriate. Some of which that. And how long is I, it I, I was there? I was surprised to 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 hear. You know, we we were talking about the blackface last week or the week before that. That stuff is still happening. But to see this bad taste that oh my Terrible. gosh, I need to I need to give them another one of those buzzers. Um, I don't even think there's a way to explain out of it. I don't think that that I don't think there's a way to back out of that. Somebody's somebody's fired. Mm-hmm. If if not if not canceled. Worse, I mean, damn. The other thing is, I'm thinking about the musicians sitting there on stage. Now, 
I'm not going to put the onus on these musicians because I'm sure none of these folks who were hired to come and play put up the Nazi paraphernalia or even suggested it. I'm sure that many of them were very upset. And Garrett McQueen is not just going to sit there on the stage and say nothing and do nothing. I'm not going to be in front of that. Right. Like I, I would make such a, a fucking stink right. about like they, the personnel manager will be tired of me. It would not be possible for me to be sitting and, you know, we armchair, we talk about being an armchair quarterback in my heart of hearts. I don't see myself sitting up there on that stage and those banners are also up there. I wouldn't. One one of us is not going to be on stage. I wouldn't stay and for I'm, the show. And I'm knocking, and the one that's on my way off stage, I'm knocking over <laughs> on, on my way out. I wouldn't stay for the show. Mm-mm. So, so you're, you're talking about from the audience perspective. From the audience perspective. So if, if, I so if you, saw saw those, that. you saw those roll down, you would get up, right. cross over all the old women <laughs> between you and the aisle, grab your pocketbook and walk out. And if they were unfurled like later in the show, doesn't matter. I'm up and out. Nope. Well, not, well, not, not me. Well, well, we'll keep an eye on this, but I mean, I don't know what to say about the folks at Aspen. The sad thing is all these musicians are going to go running back next year and they're going to put the statement out about how they were insensitive in X, Y, and Z. And at the end of the day, Oof. you know, nothing, nothing even matters. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. Anyway, thoughts and prayers to um, all of y'all running to these music festivals who don't mind hanging this Nazi paraphernalia because it wouldn't be me. Let me reiterate that. You better be motherfucking sure that it would never be me. So, I mean, look at that. You have the whole orchestra just sitting there. And again, I'm not trying to blame the musicians because they didn't have anything to do, I hope, no, I see with the saying. stage design. And I'm I'm not going to just sit there. Where do we draw the line, Scott? At what point do we disrupt decorum and make a stink? What, what has to be, what flag has to be flying? What has to be unfurled on the backdrop? And this is what I talk about when, when we say drawing those lines and creating those deal breakers when it comes to equity. Okay. The predominantly white Eurocentric programming is not a deal breaker for these folks in these orchestras. They, you know, talk so much about, you know, what they believe in and X, Y, and Z, but at the end of the day, they're going to sit down in that chair and they're going to play. All right. Mm -hmm. This was not a deal breaker because I don't see a riot filled orchestra. I see folks sitting down and playing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that was not a deal breaker. What is it? Are, are there deal breakers? Is it possible for these spaces to really be transformed if from the top all the way, you know, the executive director, whoever's writing the checks all the way down to the musicians, if we're just going along, can we, can we transform the spaces? This is an obvious misstep. And here we are talking about it. With, and and th- I haven't seen this particular photo, so that means there are a few of them mm. um, circling around. Anyway, mm. what what what's the de- so th- there are no deal breakers. There, there there's no line that that we will draw when it comes to how we engage these conversations in orchestral space. That's pushing the line. That's pushing the line. You don't follow what I'm saying. The, seeing how far what, how far you can get away with it. You're pushing the line. Oh, right? that's what that's what these groups are doing, right? right. I, that's the way it looks. Huh. In what world would somebody put together a festival and think that that was all right? I'm, I'm gonna say I'm, we're, we're gonna move on, but listen. Imagine <laughs> Essence Fest, or you know, some um, black thing, and someone had the pea brain idea 
to do something that intersected World War II history or whatever and unfurled some Nazi things. Can you imagine? <laughs> can you imagine? All right. Anyway, I considered. I can only imagine. I considered uh, transitioning into the second, out of that, and into the second movement with some music from the Sound of Music, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling it. Okay. So I did a little looking around and. You know, um, another composer, Young Dolph, and uh, his his partner, Key Glock, they paid a visit to Aspen, Colorado, and and inspired this composition. It's called Aspen, and we're going to listen to a little bit of it to get us into our second movement today. Stay out my way, I'll pop you like an Aspen. Watch out. Trap nigga on the way to Aspen. Aspen. Smoke the best weed and spend millions on fashion. Stop. I catch the chicken, went ballin' in Aspen, Colorado. Grew up fucked up, now I'm having yeah, yeah. Don't make me book you for a closed casket yeah, yeah. Drop a bag on your ass and go to Aspen, Aspen. I just dropped off 60 bags in the Ashton Mark. She in my past tense, Ooh. but she a bad bitch Ooh. Smoked a blunt and count my money, started dancing Ooh. My bitch so jealous, she said, who the fuck you dancing with? Aspen is lit I want to <laughs> I, I go. Have you ever been to Aspen, Colorado, the city? Uh, I haven't. I've been to uh, Breckenridge and Denver and Colorado Springs and a bunch off in the woods, but no, never Aspen. I don't have that kind of money. Oh, well, Young Dolphin, Key Glock, they got that money. Evidently. <laughs> I am happy for you. We're, 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 we're done talking about that, but I am, I am beside myself. We're done talking about it for now. I, we done and here I go again. Listen, right. real quick. <laughs> we can have some grace around some of these conversations and, you know, lead with that compassion when it comes to nuanced conversations, when it comes to missteps that maybe, you know, these sorts of issues haven't entered the orchestral space and people working in 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 those capacities aren't familiar with certain aspects of black culture or, you know, um, the Spanish language or, or whatever. But we aren't talking about something nuanced here. Right. Is is that not just common? But but I said that with the blackface too. I thought it was it was just common knowledge that that was inappropriate as well. But here we are. Yeah. In the second movement where this Thank week goodness. we're celebrating one composer and one composer only. The one and only Beyonce Giselle Knowles Carter. She gave us a new a new body of work last week and everyone who knows me knows i'm a i'm a proud member of the beehive mm -hmm. i think this album renaissance scott really brushes up against in an important way the conversation of honoring roots and really going back and recontextualizing things as they should be, you know, and absent of the commercialization, absent of uh, the whitewashing of things. I think uh, this Beyonce album, Renaissance, does that for dance. Um, it affirms black culture. It affirms queer culture. And I think if you really dig in, it affirms so many of the aesthetics that I think that we should really be considering when we use the phrase classical music in an American context. We're going to go through and and uh, pick out some of our favorite moments, but I think the way that different dance beats were utilized and, and ones that, again, point directly back to a time before, you know, is a part of that practice of, you know, foundationalizing a music in America. We have a lot of beautiful electric guitar playing that... Mm -hmm 
points back to um, particularly the blues and and all that yeah. sort of stuff, which you know uh, is again foundational to that conversation of American classical. And then you know you have Beyonce, who herself is such a brilliant instrument you know going from the singing to the rapping and so many things and then she has the whole team around her let's say you're not even uh, a fan of music at all much less the music of beyonce i think the production quality of this of this uh project is something to really consider to to really uh think about as mm. as being just brilliant the way things are mixed and master you just got done fighting with pro tools for 12 weeks you know right i'm sure that you heard some things that you know took hours days weeks months even to get sounding perfectly right yeah. for beyonce you know imagine having the stress of pro tools and having beyonce over your shoulder i just mm. couldn't i wouldn't Ooh. go to bed <laughs> I would make sure that this project is right. Like, I, I bet not be sleep and Beyonce is somewhere wondering how the project is going. Anyway, let's, mm. um, let, let, let's just uh, check out a few of these tracks. So I wasn't expecting you to come over here and tell me that you had listened to it, which, you know, really? I think is kind of Oh, cool. you thought that I was going to bring, bring in some mess and compete <laughs> with Beyonce oh. and you? And that's, and that's, you know, one of the ways that this album starts with Beyonce saying that I'm that girl can't compete. I'm not going to excerpt too much of this because the bots, even though I do things right, like to come after me. Um, but the one track that uh, caught my attention first, because I figured that you would like it, is a tune called Cuff It. I want to listen to a little bit of the opening here. I feel like falling in love. Falling in love. I'm in the mood to something it's an upbeat sort of feel it feels like you know you're getting ready for a fun night or you're at home getting dressed maybe you're cooking dinner scooting around as you say i thought of you when i heard this track and i want to know why what what makes you think that i'm getting ready to go out <laughs> <laughs> and using this <laughs> I, I, I see you dancing to something like this I am flattered I am legit flattered yeah, but that you, you would but you tie heard, that to me but you heard that fun little guitar riff in the background that's there. not Rogers there, there's 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 someone there was someone in that studio just really bopping their head right. getting to hear that you know and getting to be a part of that um I'll, I'll I'll jump to the the other track though that I really like before I give you a uh a shot to shout out your favorites there's a track on here uh track 14 of 16 called America has a problem first of all of course I'm going to be attracted Mm -hmm. Beyonce knows that we exist. You know, the fans that really, you know, have a problem. She knows that a title like that would attract us. And the first time I pressed, well, I, I didn't just press play on it because I went through the album. The phasing on this album is incredible as well. Mm -hmm. If you're really listening on um, um, Apple iTunes or whatever, you know, I, I uh, encourage the headphones because of the um, the stereo quality, but just how cleanly it goes from track to track is brilliant. Anyway, the track America has a problem. Um, in addition to just being one of those sexy tracks and affirming activism in a unique way, it highlights, as I was saying before, the instrument that is Beyonce, the way that she masterfully goes from singing to speaking to rapping. It's, it's unlike 
so many mm. of y'all's faves. 2048 at the trap, hit it with the rap, put it on the map, then we right back. Call me when you wanna get hot, 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 I know what my body should have been doing, and I know what it did. <laughs> they got all of my dance moves in the airport because, you know, it's B. It's B. What, what on this album uh, caught your attention? Uh, it started to hit for me on Church Girl. That was, that was the track that I really started to respond to. Uh, and, you know, I think that a lot of people can see themselves in the lyrics, you know, uh, body positivity. I mean, we just got through a pandemic. A, a Panera. We've been out here in Panera for <laughs> how long? Pan African, and we're getting ready to head into another one with uh, monkeypox. So uh, <laughs> I you don't know, like the title of that. I'm disease. just in the. We're right now. We're in the sweet spot. <laughs> yeah, in between the two. So we need to make it. We need to take Al- advantage Al-Zad's of everything. Still open, right? So <laughs> it's a church girl. But church girl, right? And and come on, drop it like a thotty. Come on. <laughs> I mean, that that was that was one of I, that got me smiling and and my head bobbing around the lake a little bit. Feel like you to move mountains. Mm-hmm. You're saying, yeah. Say, say more. Say more. Was it was it just these vocals that were were getting well, it's, to you? It's her delivery, but also the words too. And last week, you know, we were talking about um, uh, that article, uh, the the cost of luck. Right. You know about how at the end of all these auditions and the and the money that you've paid out to try to get into competitions or uh, uh, fellowships, and at the end, you feel like a hollowed-out tree that's been struck by lightning. Or like you just got done moving a damn mountain and nobody's looked, mm-hmm. nobody's paid any attention to it. It's just they take it for granted. Yes. And come on, <laughs> that was a clever see, turn a, of phrase. See, that's what you heard. Uh huh. No, that is a that is a, a great track. I love how it starts in that. You know, even as the title suggests, that church music and okay. So as you're listening, as I was listening through the album, oh, so we're we're about to cool down a little bit. She's mm-hmm. gonna give us the ballad, but that beat drops and something different happens. Right. You know, she don't give us a break for a second. So really though, <laughs> and but then she does give it in plastic off the sofa, which for me that was my standout track, because I I felt like she was just singing right into my ear. Mm. You know, the virtuosic nature of her voice just right there in my ear, and at the end of it all. Really what that is, that's the boyfriend experience. I felt like I got the boyfriend experience after listening to that track. course she goes into what is it virgo groove mm-hmm. the first line is um come over baby and i said 
go yes ma'am <laughs> <laughs> i'm listening anyway so such a such a great album i um you know one thing that i did want to say about it uh that i was going to say at the beginning of course you as soon as a, a beyonce project drops you have the people who make the point to say oh well it was mid or i didn't really care for it or or, or x y and z you know you're going to have all those people and then you're going to have folks that are just not really all that familiar with the music of Beyonce. They're familiar with all the hype, assume that it's overhype, and mm -hmm. just decide that they aren't into it. I feel like that ego is what keeps the um, the orchestral spaces a little bit behind. Just this assumption that something different isn't going to be liked by the audience. Oh, the orchestra probably isn't going to like playing it. But if you, Scott, you know, can find aspects of this most popular of music by this most popular of artists, I feel like mm -hmm. a lot of people can. We just have to give the popular thing a try, you mm -hmm. know. And I wish that the orchestras would consider that. The classical radio stations would consider that there is a popular music road toward you know audience growth and diversifying your playlist you just really have to i don't even want to say take the risk because i don't even see it as a risk you have to acknowledge the opportunity i'll I'm, say that i'm about to step into the b trap here though i will say one thing the use of mother trucker was a little gratuitous for me <laughs> yeah the second word on track one was mother trucker <laughs> because that's beyonce <laughs> saying listen i'm I gonna know. say what i want and i am not policing her at all <laughs> I so am if not this saying. is too much i'm just go ahead and lay it out now <laughs> right but but and, and if and if we're gonna think about see now i'm getting deep a little bit if we're gonna think about this album as a metaphor for a night out, you know, all of these different dance sounds, all of the different mm -hmm. conversations you have with the men you meet, with the women you meet. Do you not prefer <laughs> laying it out there or being able to lay it out there second word? So, you know, anything else I say in the evening, maybe some of the things I do is going to be all right because I'm getting my motherfuckers out immediately, you know, <laughs> heard. <laughs> Yeah, and, no, and of, you're, right. you're and, right. And of course, proverbially speaking in other ways, you know, uh, laying it out there, you know, uh, when I first met Dell, one of the first conversations was um, Black Lives Matter. Give it up. Mm -hmm. What do you think? What What are your experiences? In no, the I, I'd much you know? rather everybody be aloof. <laughs> the, the second conversation was, listen, I smoke weed and I smoke weed every day. How about you? Question three. <laughs> what should you be in therapy for? Right. <laughs> but, you know, anyway, all, all of that to say, I think there's always a conversation, something to pull from a Beyonce project. And she did it again. This is apparently part one of three. So if this is the oh, dance one, you oh. know, Renaissance part two could be something different. Renaissance part three. What if, oh my gosh, what if Beyonce gives us a symphony? See, we sitting here talking about this. Beyonce is is leaning over uh, some staff paper right now and saying, mm. oh, y'all want an orchestral composition? Okay, I'll give that to y'all as well. Could you imagine? I could imagine. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> <sighs> I'm gonna get in, go ahead and get into the third movement now because Let's go just ahead. thinking about that just gives You're me breathless. goosebumps. Anyway, go listen to Renaissance and I'm gonna repeat myself. Listen to it on a music service of some sort so that you can listen to the attention uh, in detail from track to track. Oh, my gosh. It's just a, a really brilliant project, and we expect no less from Beyonce. But this week, 
Brandon Elliott, head of the Choral Arts Initiative, is this week's Third Movement guest. We talk about a lot of things, including um, how this ensemble survived uh, through COVID and what audience engagement meant when it really came to their survival, being an institution that um, audiences wanted to see survive no matter what, and um, the role of his music uh, that uh, he and the group creates in that conversation. We talk a bit about their new album that just came out. It's called From Wilderness, a meditation on the Pacific Crest Trail, music by Jeffrey Darris. And uh, we also talk about the fact that this ensemble, Scott, on their website is very intentionally and openly not aligned with the idea of diversity, at least not as mm. uh, many people define it. So we talk a little bit about that. But where we start the conversation um, is where um, I ask Brandon about new music when it comes to the choral side of things. There are a lot of preconceived notions that folks have about new music on the band side or in the orchestral world. You know, it'll be crunchy, it'll be this, it'll be that. Well, I basically wanted to know if people on the choral side of things have similar conversations. I would be excited about going to a concert where I knew that I would hear some new choral music, but not everyone feels that way, I guess. And uh, Brandon Elliott at the Choral Arts Initiative have a, a unique way of addressing that. So that's where we start our conversation. We're going to phase into it with an excerpt from the new album. Uh, this movement from the work is called Kennedy Meadows from the section uh, written in honor of Southern California. A bit of this as performed by Brandon Elliott and the Choral Arts Initiative to get us into my conversation with Brandon. Hope you all enjoy saying at Coral Arts Initiative, we just do not do the canon. Um, and <laughs> I do recognize I do recognize an importance to that. And there are some incredible organizations that almost exclusively do that. And I love them. I'm probably a subscriber to them. Uh, but at Coral Arts Initiative, no, we don't uh, do the, the canonic repertoire. We're only exclusively looking at the works of living composers. And even then, we're actually having discussions in our organization of do we even drop the term composer? Like, do we just mm -hmm. say living music creators or living music, uh, you know, artists or whatever we want to say? Because composer also has um, loaded expectations about many different things. And so we're, we're really focusing on living, insert title, right? Composer, music creator, um, artist. And the way I'm primarily approach programming and selecting repertoire is starting with text. Hmm. And because, you know, sometimes as an artist myself, I can get in this lofty thinking of, well, if it's great art, people will come. And but also, right, that begs the question, what is great art? Right. And um, <laughs> but that's probably a whole different podcast episode. Mm -hmm. And what I've realized, though, is, you know, if we're trying to get people to come to our performance, at the end of the day, we need people to buy tickets and come to our performances. That's that's just the primary business model. And uh, they may not grasp to most of the music that we perform for them because it's we can't market it like Beethoven, right? Mm -hmm. We can't market it like Bach. 
It's stuff that they guaranteed I've never heard before. There is very likely no recording that they can listen to to go, hmm, do I want to see this in person? Do I want to hear this? And so what we can sell them on is the brand promise that if you come to a Coral Arts Initiative performance, it will be sung um, at a high quality. It's going to be a good experience. But then primarily it's we're here to tell this story. And uh, so it's really starting with the text. And even if it's several different pieces, which is often the case, is there a narrative thread that tells a unified story from beginning to end? And one of the things I find most satisfying is sometimes when I look out to the audience, you see only the tops of heads. And right. to me, that's a good thing because that means they're following along, they're reading the text. And so that's primarily how I approach programming at Coral Arts is starting with the text, finding narrative threads, finding overall arcs, and telling a compelling story. That's probably not how you want to engage your choir, though. You don't want to see the top of their heads. You want to see definitely their faces. not. No, they they need to be looking up. Yeah, you know yeah. when I when I think about, especially when I think about commissions, you know, commissioning new works for uh for voice and 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 for choirs, the text seems like um there's privilege in having music with text because there's a a very identifiable way to connect with the audience, if as you've been describing. I wonder what do aversions to new choral music look like? You know, when I think about the instrumental side, the orchestral side of music, you say new music, people are thinking of, of music that's crunchy or jarring or dissonant and not necessarily pretty sounding. Are there, are there similar preconceptions when it comes to new choral music? Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. And uh, that, that transcends to the audience, right, the guests, but also to the musicians in the ensemble. Right. Um, and so our audition process has to really be, well, it has been reimagined to account for the fact that we only do music that many choral artists may perceive as more challenging than doing repertoire that they probably sing every year in some other organizations, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like they can just pick up the Messiah and do that almost from memory. It's they have to constantly be learning, sometimes very challenging, and, and often music that there's no sort of ear reference for. We're creating a new soundscape with maybe there's going to be some non-traditional vocal technique, like a, some sort of pitch bend or quarter steps or right. weird percussive elements, right? And so it can be challenging. And same thing for the listener. And we know that most of our audience members, they are not necessarily musical experts, right? They want to come and hear some sort of story. And as a programmer and a curator, that means I have to balance a program too. There has to be some admittedly very challenging things to listen to compared mm -hmm. to what we mostly listen to. But then there has to be some some ear candy moments that's like, oh, like I can get, I can attach to that. I get that. Or, oh, that sounds familiar. And um, yeah. Yeah, and and I love that approach. You know, you have to mix it all together. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll we'll return to talking a little bit more about a uh, choral arts initiative, but I want to talk a little bit more about you specifically, your journey okay. as an entrepreneur. Something that mm -hmm. at, maybe they're talking about it in school these days, but when I was in school, you know, the idea of entrepreneurship didn't take the center place as it seems like it's beginning to take to engage the conversations and to do what you do. The spirit of entrepreneurship has to be there. I wonder if you always had that understanding. Did you fall into entrepreneurship? What's the what's the story of your relationship with it? Yeah, entrepreneurship is a word written with expectations, isn't it? And if I were to really look back, I remember even as a young child, I would always do these little odds and ends jobs like 
just to make a little bit of side money. I would, you know, I did like a little mobile car wash thing in my neighborhood. Why people paid me money to terribly wash their cars, <laughs> I still like feel bad about that. But you know what? Like I just wanted to constantly be doing something or maybe it was helping my aunt sell jewelry on a commission basis door to door as a child. On the art side, it started somewhat by accident in 2011, 2012, and it was starting Coral Arts Initiative. And um, I think at the core of entrepreneurship is really the, the intersection or the merger of creativity and innovation. Mm. And I think as artists, many of us are inherently creative and uh, many people have creative ideas, right? Creativity, I define it in my music business class as something that's novel and useful. And something can be really novel, but it's not useful, right? Something can be really useful, but it's not novel. But right. creativity is bringing both of those together. But for many artists I've, I've observed, that's kind of where it stops, is at the creative realm. Mm -hmm. But if we then bring in the innovation elements, um, to me, that's the more critical aspect of entrepreneurship and the part where I've had to uh, expend the most personal growth and research and learning on. Um, the innovation side is essential. And so it's then being able to take your creative idea and then successfully implement it within your organization or your marketplace or your platform. And that to me is the innovative side of things. And again, together that creates entrepreneurship. And so I would say, yeah, 2011, 2012 was when I really started to embrace this label, this word of I'm an entrepreneur. I have mm -hmm. to take this idea. It was a creative idea with some friends to let's sing together and do this type of music. But then it was, well, now we're missing the innovation piece. How do we implement it into our community and, and make it an essential fabric of our community so that it's actually a sustainable business? Um, and that's the innovative work and that's the ongoing work. It's never a destination or check mark. It's constantly innovating. That word sustainability, I think, is is really important and a word that I spend a lot of time thinking about in, in many different ways. I wonder, since 2011, 2012, um, what was the marker for you that what you were doing and building for yourself was actually sustainable? Was it a, a dollar amount or was it a, a number of clients? How did you know that, okay, I'm an entrepreneur and I can sustain this as my living? Yeah, that's a great question. I remember when I called a dear mentor of mine, I asked or I told him about this idea to start this organization. And he so apathetically just said, okay, good for you. <laughs> I was like, anything else you want to share? He's like, call me in three years if it's still around. Mm. That's when I'm going to pay attention. And so I guess in his mind, and I've kind of used that as a benchmark, like if you can start something, anyone can do that. In the state of California, it's two pieces of paper. You file it with the state, you've got a business, right? But call me in three years and let's see if you're still around and you're still doing stuff and you're growing. And I will say he was pretty darn spot on. The first three years of that organization were so challenging. Mm. And to be clear, there are some organizations that take off, especially ours, right away. And I love that for them. Our journey was not that way. It was three years of very difficult, transformative growth. And growth requires a lot of um, growing pains. Uh, I would say by year four, we started to stabilize. And frankly, I would say year seven is when it was like, we're okay, like, we're good. We feel stable. I don't have to worry every week, like, are we gonna have enough income to like pay bills and expenses and mm -hmm. payables? Like now it's like, we're okay. 
of course, I don't want to ever let my guard down, right? We constantly have to of innovate course. to sustain, but we're in a pretty stable, comfortable position. There were a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of organizations that felt very stable until 2020 came, you know, and that mm -hmm. tested a lot of us. On the other side of that coin, you have a lot of entrepreneurs whose work was uh, elevated and, and really um, augmented based on things like the normalization of the virtual world, Zoom and, and, and those sorts of things. I wonder how uh, the pandemic impacted Coral Arts Initiative and if it's continuing to have an impact. It certainly did. And if I could look back and appraise honestly, I'd say in many ways it, it was a positive benefits. And I, I do want to just point out that I'm aware that for many people, right, the past years have been incredibly arduous, incredibly mm -hmm. unfortunate. And I, I do want to acknowledge that for Coral Arts Initiative, uh, we saw our community rally behind us and support in ways that have never happened before. Because the one thing that we primarily do, which is live performing, that stopped. And I remember I penned a pretty I, I, everyone on my board, everyone on my team knows I hate fundraising. I just, <laughs> oh, I despise it. It is the F word that I never want to say. Sure. But, um, but it's something that has to be done as a, as a nonprofit organization, right? And I remember for the first time, I wrote a really impassioned appeal letter and I physically sent it to hundreds of people. And I really just talked about, you know, how this is going to impact us and how this is not going to be, we'll see after Easter break. This is, mm -hmm. it's going to be a long time. And we saw an inspiring and, and um, uh, getting emotional just thinking about it. I mean, just so many people came out during the most difficult time in their lives too and said, we believe in you. Let me give you a gift that can help carry you through this time. Um, on the entrepreneur and consulting side as an individual, it opened up a lot of opportunities. Um, and yeah, because of Zoom, all of a sudden you don't have to travel to clients. All of a sudden you don't have to travel to like, I could connect with clients immediately. Mm -hmm. um, and also during this period of time, the concept of DEI and ADEI was right. no longer this like thing that's only given to one person in a giant Fortune 100 company, right? It's like now it needs to be culturally integrated. And that's that's still the ongoing work, I think, right now for corporations is great. You say you have these metrics. It's still not a part of your culture. And that's where the hard work begins. So overall, the pandemic for me personally, as well as for Coral Arts Initiative, we came out of it, I think, a, a little bit better overall. Um, and again, I say that with with great awareness that not everyone can say that. Yep, And we're definitely going to get to a i.e. As, uh, as as the Coral Arts Initiative <laughs> yes. practices. Uh -huh. But I can't help but to ask, you know, a lot of organizations saw that outpouring of support, especially at the beginning of the pandemic when none of us knew what was going to happen. I know that you can't guess what every person's reason is or or was but you know how do you how do you measure that sort of impact when it comes to future fundraising or or future engagement what do you think it is that the coral arts initiative was doing that inspired those people in that way yeah i think part of it was you know and we talked about this at a meeting which is like what made this so successful like 
Is this something that can be duplicated or was it only just because of the convergence of the, the shock of the shutdown plus mm -hmm. the strong appeal? Uh, we walked away from that meeting with a couple sort of estimations or ideas. One was a letter from me, which I had never done before. Uh, the direct people, communication. Right. So I think some people in the development were like, that's the first time you've caught. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and I think, you know, and I started the letter. I'd have to pull it up. I, I, I probably should reread it at some point. I, I think I started by saying, you may be surprised to see a letter for me because this is the first time I've ever done this. And I, I was very direct and here's the reality of what we face. And while I hold this optimism that we're going to be done with this in two weeks, everyone that has a PhD after their name is saying that's not going to be the case. Mm. And, and um, really just talked about here's all the things we've done in our history and all these things can be taken away um, if we don't get some significant support. So I think it was the appeal letter. I think also, you know, we saw continued giving throughout that year period. I think the stimulus has certainly helped. I think uh, economic conditions certainly helped. I think um, for many people, cost of livings took a little bit of a decline. Of course, mm -hmm. we're now on the opposite end of that. Right. And so I think, you know, people all of a sudden, they, they, they felt more comfortable giving a little bit more money. And so we were worried. Um, that when we start to jump back into some things and start to really bring in some more appeals that maybe giving won't be as strong. And we were surprised yet again this past year, we exceeded all of our fundraising goals. So um, I, I don't know. I think, you know, I, I talk about this with my friends sometimes, you know, we often don't realize how much we value something until it's taken away from us, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's called grief. <laughs> and so I think sometimes when, when people we underestimated how much people cared about coming to our performances, perhaps, because it was all of a sudden, right? We were two days away from a performance when we said, show's canceled, we're refunding right. your tickets. And I think when people realize, wait a minute, like I may not get to hear this music for a while, maybe it created that, that small scale sense of grief, like I think I'm losing something. And I also think we, we view things and see things with more clarity sometimes from a distance. So. The longer that people were away from us and couldn't engage with us, I think it made them more eager to jump back in and support us in other ways. Yeah, a lot of a lot of seeds there for all of your music business students as they, you know, <laughs> <laughs> prepare for for the the unforeseen. You know, yeah. when you mentioned your music business students, when you mentioned them earlier, I thought about the fact that when I was an undergraduate student, music business majors were around, but few and far between. Most of us were music education ma majors. I went right. back and, and did a lecture about undergraduate, oh, maybe a year and a half ago, and most music majors were music business majors, and you had maybe one or two music education folks. Now, you know, we can talk about why people may have an aversion to music education, but it's an important leg of the journey. It's how the journey begins for most of us. Is there a relationship between teaching music business and selling or affirming music education? So I'll first start by sharing that uh, I obviously I work at a college. And so these views are explicitly my own. <laughs> sure. And, and that being said, I will state, uh, you know, Garrett, I, I think especially the undergraduate music learning experience is so fundamentally flawed. Mm. And 
you know, and it might be jarring for people listening, like, well, you teach at a institution of higher ed, like do something about it. It is, it is problems, eons beyond my pay grade that Mm -hmm. I try to solve at the local campus level. But yeah, I think there's, I honestly, I, I think I might diverge and slightly disagree. I think many students find appeal hmm. in a music education degree, but uh, then when they're placed in student teaching or in an actual job, it's no surprise that we see one out of three will quit. And I think the reason why there's an appeal is it's sort of the only musical um congruency compared to other majors where, oh, I major in this, I get this credential, and I get a full-time job with benefits. I'll follow that path. Mm -hmm. So I think it's appealing for students, especially in high schools. If you look at how they're counseled now by high school counselors, it's find a major that gets you a job. What job do you want, right? And so I think I'm seeing with my current students, they find a draw to music ed because it's great. I get a degree and I get a job. And then they actually do the job and one out of three are like, whoa, I never had a reality check to realize I don't want to do this or I I could do this, but I don't know if it's what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, With the music business students, they're in an entirely different field. They're either ones that don't want to be on on the stage or on the creative side, or they are, but they realize that, again, the creativity is half the battle. How do I monetize and implement what I'm doing and innovate it into the marketplace. And I have seen more and more students taking the music business class that within months of taking that class, they've started businesses, they've um, gotten jobs at huge entertainment companies, um, and they're, they're finding success in ways other than what they're told when they start college, which is music ed or performance. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole other incredibly rich pathway in the music business side of things. Yeah, I didn't realize that statistic was so high. I'm definitely among those music education folks who did student teaching and said, you know what, maybe I should try playing bassoon professionally. Because- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, there, there are many reasons for, for many people, right. but but that that's fascinating for, for me to learn. Maybe there's something that uh, stu- would-be student teachers aren't being prepared for in the process. For me, I'll, I'll just speak to my own personal experience. The little kids, the um, Orf Schulwerk is what we did in Tennessee, you know, with the elementary. I loved it. You know, teaching high school band, that was so fun for me. But that middle school track, I just did not want to risk dedicating my life to that. You know, I mean, so so w- with all of that said, m- maybe there are some things that the music education teaching curriculum can address to hang on to some more folks or or at least give them a better perspective of what it would look like? Yeah, I, I think in some institutions we're starting to see that, but I still would argue that if we're trying to implement the change in higher ed, it's already too late. It's mm. what stories, what stories are these high schoolers being told before they've even made their college decisions? Mm. What sort what model of success are they being compared to? Right? And, you know, you look at these, and again, I have mad respect for educators, for counseling professionals, like the the work that they do is remarkable. But I I always think I'm, and I'm doing this myself a lot more, which is what narrative are we, are we coming from? And what narrative, what story of success, what model of success are we giving these 16, 17 year olds? 
And for many of them, and I, my, the first day in my music business class is write down your definition of success. Hmm. Success to me looks like, success to me feels like, success to me is this much money. Success to me is whatever it might be. And for most students, it's money. It's not a feeling. It's not a sense of comfort or stability. It's it's this much money. And the funny thing is when you ask an 18-year-old that, it's like, honey, that's not enough money in, <laughs> <Right>. in Los <laughs> Angeles. But you know, to them, it's, it's always a monetary marker. That's mm -hmm. what success is. Mm. I want to use that word narrative to sort of pivot us back to Coral Arts Initiative. So DEI, those three letters, in my opinion, have become more of a narrative than anything. You use those three letters and people are to assume you're paying attention to certain conversations. The Coral Arts Initiative is very um, different in that regard as, as far as the narrative surrounding that word diversity uh, specifically. I, I wonder if you could let folks know what the Coral Arts Initiative's view on diversity is. Yeah. And it's interesting. And actually, just before I sat down to uh, have this podcast with you, I got an email from a consulting firm that has an arts nonprofit. And they said, we noticed your approach to diversity and inclusion. We want to learn more from you. Would you mm -hmm. be willing to work with us for a couple of weeks uh, on behalf of this client? So I, I get messages all the time because people will ask me, so wait, diversity is not important to corollaries? Of course, diversity is important. It's incredibly important. Uh, so let me share some of the intentionality be behind why we decided to focus particularly on access, equity, and inclusion. So at the end of the day, diversity is truly a numbers game, right? It's 40% white, 20% Hispanic, whatever it might be. And any organization can mandate diversity today, right? By 2023, we will have a workforce that is insert number percent, insert identity. And it can be mandated. And it's very performative. It's very, uh, it's very palpable. And people can see, okay, there is a measurable number here that we can, that we can aspire to. My uh, response to that is, great, but you cannot mandate inclusion. And that requires, like we talked about earlier, that requires a cultural value that takes a lot of time uh, to cultivate and facilitate, and admittedly also to show people the door that don't want to get on board with that. Mm. And we sort of have a coach up or coach out mentality. So at first, we're always going to approach this as, oh, like, we just need to educate and inform and, and maybe provide them an alternative view. And if that's still not something that they want to partake in, then we exercise a coach out model, right? Um, so we view diversity as more of an inherent benchmark in our inclusion efforts, and we believe that's where we want to focus our true and ongoing work is the inclusion aspect. And I think the challenge with, uh, I think the discomfort having worked with some organizations is inclusion never really has like a, ah, we've done it. Yeah. Check. Diversity does. Diversity, check, we've met these benchmarks. Look, our populate, our workforce represents these statistical numbers, check. And most CEOs, they want check marks. And I always tell people, inclusion will never stop. Inclusion will be ongoing daily work for the rest of your organization's existence. 
it never stops. And so I think that's why for us, when we wanted to be really intentional, like if we're going to say that we value these things, we're making a lifelong commitment to them as well. And what can we actually commit to? And what can we actually commit to year after year after year? So that was the intention behind that. Um, and I think that that then spills into the other uh, values that we hold, which is equity and inclusion. And um, I think with equity, sometimes that, again, can create some discomfort because it can feel directionless. It could mm. feel like, well, like, how how do it? And we also have to recognize, too, we're a, a rather small arts organization, right? Like, we realize that we cannot change the world, but we do realize that we can create impact. And so that was, again, the ethos of our approach, of our values, which is we can create impact. I'm thinking of just a recent story about what equity means to us, which is just ensuring that everyone has a very equal, but also equitable chance at success. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and also a chance to be at that table. And to, to me, that's what inclusion is, is does every person have a seat at the table and a voice at the table? And am I as a leader actively soliciting disagreement and discord and, uh, Again, with this equity story, we had a, a, a choral artist of ours that very stressed said, look, I just got a flat tire. I don't have the money to fix this. I am not going to be able to make it to any of the rehearsals. And our approach was just simply get a lift or an Uber, save the receipts. We got you. Hmm. And it was almost surprising for this person because this person works for other organizations and we're not here to talk about what one does right or wrong. Um, but for us, it was just, you know, at the end of the day, this is going to cost us a small dollar sign so that this person can still be at that table and can still have a voice at that table. Um, and we've done other little things like that, too. But it's also far more intentional in the programming. And, you know, I recognize the huge unearned advantage that I have in being able to cherry pick who we get to commission next. Sure. And I think... I think all conductors could spend some more time really examining that sort of I pick you, right, sort of approach and who exactly are we asking and from, again, what narrative. Um, so I'm I'm talking a lot about this. Again, I could talk about this forever, but not to say, again, diversity is important, but we consider it a small byproduct of our inclusion efforts. So and, and I want to spend a couple more minutes specifically with that word uh, equity understanding that these aren't check boxes. Um, equity, from my understanding, does have a relationship with outcomes, you know, hope for outcomes and, you know, as, as a measure of the thing that is being done. Is, is that a correct way of thinking about the concept of equity, thinking about outcomes? You, you certainly can, right? There are, and, and that's where most people feel comfortable, which is, okay, there's going to be clear benchmarks, there's going to be clear outcomes, clear check marks. And there are many great models out there. There are so many different models and sort of um, how do we implement the, the values of, you know, access, equity, inclusion, belonging, et cetera. Um, but there are also some models where there really is no um, arrival points. And those are uncomfortable because I can, I can imagine and I know from speaking to board members like, well, how do we know for like, how do we know for doing something, mm -hmm. right? Um, the way we do it is more of a qualitative approach. So equity is, val is measured in our organization 
qualitatively through, uh, we implement these things called climate surveys. We actually mm. just did one. Um, we're, we're still crunching the data. They, they just submitted it with a deadline last week. And um, we, we look at, uh, we have a lot of survey questions that are Likert based. So we get a forced choice Likert. So we get a really, they have to choose an option. They can't live in that neutral, you know, that, that number three neutral spot. Right. And so we get a really good sense of where is their sense of belonging? Where is their sense of, do they feel like they can go to me or go to a board member or go to their section leader and voice a concern? Is there a restroom on the venue that we use that aligns with their gender identity? Mm-hmm. Is Have they ever felt unsafe physically or emotionally in our rehearsal space, right? Um, have they ever had to decline a contract offer because they couldn't afford to get to work? So we, we look at it more through a qualitative lens and then it's ongoing iterations of what are some things we can implement to address or mitigate some of the emerging concerns from the data. Mm-hmm. And and drawing that circle even broader and including audiences and constituencies, when I think about the ideas of access and inclusion, I think about what it means for audience members to see themselves not only demographically, but to see their concerns, their thoughts, the way that they engage the world represented on stage. Uh, choral, uh, the choral arts, choirs, uh, singers have the unique advantage. Again, we're going back to that idea of text and words. There's the advantage of being able to actually use one's voice and to use words to speak to the world, to speak to things that are happening out there. With all of that considered, is uh, the Choral Arts Initiative an organization that is open to repertoire that speaks to things like uh, women's rights, Black Lives Matter, you know, everything we've been talking about for these past few years? Yes. And, you know, I'm immediately thinking of a program we did in 2018. Um, and I'll, I'll share a story about that in just a bit. But the, the short answer is yes. And I think it's all in how it's delivered and how it's framed. Mm. I think there are many ways to do it. And there are organizations that do this all in their distinctly unique and brilliant ways. At Coral Arts Initiative, we do often program works that are speaking to the moment of our lived experiences. But the way it's framed and presented is often in a inviting way and, and, and offering them something that they can then consider. And I think that the danger of trying to wear the hat of advocates Mm-hmm. is that very often, and especially lately, there is dangerous narrative, again, that's going to be the word of the day, everyone, is that advocate is often now becoming conflated with adversary. Mm. And I think so long as we come from this artist approach of we're going to tell you a story and this is our view on it, we're starting to take off the advocate hat and where the adversary have. Mm. And, and it can place, admittedly, half of our listeners in a place of defensiveness. And speaking of invitation, that was the name of our 2018 program. It was called Invitation. The whole program was about white privilege and racism. And this is before everyone was talking about it in 2020. <laughs> and, and I will share, um, when I presented this program to the board, there was... N- there was no excitement in the room for it. Um, <laughs> and it was a very lengthy discussion about why I believe that this is important 
and why I believe that the way it's presented is not going to put anyone in a defensive position, regardless of what viewpoint they come from. Uh, and it was a very, uh, it was a life-changing board meeting for me. I learned a lot from that experience. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And I also had to have another conversation with the singers mm. when they, when I, you know, when the music's handed out and they look at the music and they're going over the text and there's one excerpt that says at the end of the, you know, um, white kids sitting next to blacks. That's what it comes to when we're talking about segregation and and immediately, again, some people lock up. And so we we dedicated about 30 minutes of a rehearsal to really talk about just this is factual history, folks. Mm -hmm. And we we can we have the we have the ability to engage this in an artistic space that invites people to reconsider what life is like for someone else, right? And I think Orange County also has its own challenges. When we recognize who our audience base is, Orange County is very diverse. Um, it's a very populous county, but it's also a very politically divided county. Mm. And um, we have to be mindful of how we frame. We have to be mindful of, again, it's something I'm constantly thinking of as the advocate versus the adversary. From what intentionality am I coming from when I try to share a story? or tell a story through my programming. Congratulations to you for engaging these things uh, and not, <laughs> I, I hate to accuse anyone of being, having jumped on the bandwagon, you know, and because right. intentionality is, is important and some people need to come to certain conversations in the way that they come to them. At the same time, I have to honor you and, and your organization for engaging these things before most of the other arts institutions. I think there's something to be said for that. Well, and you know, what's funny is, again, there was some initial resistance at first, but then there was major buy-in in ways that I couldn't even imagine. And I'll admit too, like, I have to remind people, I was afraid. Mm. I remember, I remember, and especially because we got notification that there was a pretty prominent, tough music critic that was coming to that performance. I thought, this is going to be the end of us. Like, I literally had that thought. Clearly, that was a thought distortion. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it, at the time, it was, oh, my gosh, of course, I find out two hours before the performance, this critic is coming. The end of the story is it was our most crit critically acclaimed performance we've done to date. I've never seen such a glowing review from an arts critic for, for our organization. Um, so it worked out. I can't guarantee that it will be the case for everyone else that chooses to engage in that work. But um, it's scary, but yeah. I don't regret it at all. Good, good. Well, I, I do have one more uh, question, but uh, before I ask you, how can folks learn more about Coral Arts Initiative, learn more about the uh, Premier Project Festival that'll be coming up in, in some months and everything else folks need to know? Yeah, so you could learn about Coral Arts Initiative on our website, coralartsinitiative.org. We're also on social media with the handle at Coral Arts OC, as in Orange County. We actually just finished our Premier Project Festival two weeks ago. It was our most incredible cohort yet. This is our third time doing this. Again, the past two years, we chose not to bring it back just because of COVID. Um, incredibly vibrantly diverse group of 15 composers and, and diverse being a very broad word, the musical ideas that they brought to the table the backgrounds that they're coming from, the lived experiences that they shared through their music. It was just so incredible. And all of their pieces, I'm just gonna shamelessly plug, or almost all of them will be available through Music Spoke through the Coral Arts Initiative series. 
uh, in just a few short weeks. Uh, we'll have their scores up, their recordings up. The artist gets a large majority of the, the sheet music sales, and we hope that their pieces go very far. Excellent. Excellent. Well, before we uh, turned on the microphones, I was telling you how much time I had been spending uh, with the From Wilderness album, just a, a beautiful uh, co collection of performances there. As a um, as a Buddhist, I chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, I was very attracted to the chakra tracks that I, I found myself returning to those. I, I want to give everyone, the listeners, a sample of that. But I wonder if you could offer some context as to why those were included and, and how you decided to embed them where you did. Yeah. So the composer, Jeffrey Darris, this was really his, you know, his approach and his his masterwork and his headspace. And his thought at the time is just as the piece is really outlining this journey of the Pacific Crest Trail from south all the way to north, so was it a journey right through the different regions of the chakras. Mm. And so he wanted to sort of trace both of those out. And it's, you know, performing it live, but also in the recording studio, those chakra movements are just so inviting and, and captivating. It's such a unique soundscape. And so when we intersperse them between the various sung or played movements, to have just a two to three minute segment of just these chakra, these crystal singing bowls playing these chakra movements, it's really compelling and very centering. And even as a conductor, it was sort of a time for me to reset mid-performance. So it's a really lovely piece. Uh, we're so thrilled with how the recording turned out and the reception of that recording. And uh, we hope that uh, many organizations choose to perform the live version. sounds there that begin the newest album, the latest album featuring the Choral Arts Initiative music of Jeffrey Darris from Wilderness, a meditation on the Pacific Crest Trail. What do you think about that idea, Scott, of embedding moments of clarity, you know, proverbial moments of Zen, maybe even within an album? There are certainly times when I'm listening to music, when I stop listening to music to think about what I just heard or let it sink in. And mm. I think that's a really clever and artistic way to allow listeners of this album to do the same thing. I think there's also a tendency to want for the, the sound to change. Like if we're talking about TV, jump cuts, you know, the right. quick fire video, mm -hmm. where it can be really relaxing to watch one long segment of video. And I think the same for audio. There's a tendency to want something to change too quickly. I mean, we've been we've been conditioned into that mm -hmm. and you know, the devil is in the details, you know, it's not you know, it's something that my teacher um in grad school, shout out to Judy Farmer used to always drill into us is that the space between the notes has music as well. You aren't just playing sure. the notes, you aren't just playing the dots. You have to connect 
the dots in that way. And I think this album, the way that it's laid out is a great way to do that, even as a listener. So a uh, huge thanks to Brandon Elliott for joining me um, and huge shout out to the Coral Arts Initiative. I'll have more information on them, their website in the description of this. All right. Um, we're going to have a little short triloquy this week where uh, we're going to stick on the uh, theme of singers to a uh, to a degree, uh, Coral Arts Initiative is over on the West Coast. We're going to go to the East Coast for the Triloquy, and I'm going to get into it with a little bit um, of the music by Anthony Davis uh, that's a part of his opera X, The Life and Times of Malcolm X. This is a, a track titled Audubon Ballroom to get us into this final movement. So X by Anthony Davis, Pulitzer Prize winning composer, Triloquy, former Triloquy guest. You know, that opera is going to be staged at the Metropolitan Opera uh, in New York next season. I can't wait to go see it in the same way that I went to go uh, see Fire Shut Up In My Bones. I just wanted to be there for that. And I thought it was a historic moment. Well, mm -hmm. when you buy a ticket to the Met, you get on a little list. Where people call you every now and again, quarterly or so, maybe, to see if you're open to uh, making a contribution, a charitable contribution to the Metropolitan Opera. I'm sure we can look up quickly how uh, big their endowment is. But anyway, they're calling me to, to ask for my money today. Now, I believe in the arts. I believe in many arts institutions and, and what they can do. As the person on the phone was talking to me, and I'm listening to the spiel. I give him his chance. Something triggered me. He said, okay, you have to remember that folks like Broadway got a lot of help from uh, local and state governments, but we weren't counted in that. So that's especially why we need your support. So can we count on you to offer $250 to be a part of the X, Y, and Z circle or whatever, however they name their, their different uh, donor levels. And, you know, Maybe there is a universe where I would have made the contribution, but his his mentioning Broadway triggered me in a way. What I ended up saying to him on the phone was, sir, do you understand why Broadway may have gotten the support that the Met did not get? Mm. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Well, I, I don't understand. <laughs> he was, he right, just lost for words, just didn't called. understand. So I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, you have to remember that, yes, I'm on your list because I went to go see Fire Shut Up In My Bones. I flew all the way from St. Paul. And he And he had that in the, his records that I lived in St. Paul. I flew all the way uh, to St. Paul because the Met doesn't often program works by black composers. And I want to support that. And I'm not completely comfortable um, supporting the Metropolitan Opera in this way until I see a shift in that dynamic. I told the man I'm looking forward to go see Anthony Davis's X when that's uh, programmed and premiered um, on, on, on your stage. But at the end of the day, I need to see more performances uh, of black music, music by black composers on your stage before I can commit to that. And you want to know what this person had nerve to say to me. He said, well, you have to remember that a couple seasons ago, we staged Gershwin's Porgy and Beth. <laughs> 
So that's when the tussle began. How did began. that go? No. How did that? How did that? How did, so anyway, so we we exchanged some more words and how it basically ended. You know, after I give my spiel about what I want to see opera be and where I want to see it to go and where the Met has to go to get my dollars, my donations, X, Y, and Z. After my spiel, he goes, right. Well, I'll be <laughs> sure to tell my other da, 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 and, and that's the end of the phone call. I just wanted to mention that because there are many of you listening who get these phone calls. Maybe there are some of you who have to make these phone calls. You work for arts institutions. You work, Scott, for classical radio, and you have to get on the radio for these pledge drives, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to understand that as we continue to uh, talk about diversity and audiences specifically and, and uh, community engagement, the more often you're gonna have to deal with folks like me. And you're going to have to answer for the culture that surrounds the programming within these spaces. What would be your approach, Scott? Let's say let's let's say you find yourself in a situation where you have to make a direct phone call, not mm-hmm. just a pledge drive on the radio, and you get on the phone with somebody like me saying, "Well, I don't hear enough. I don't hear you platforming enough black music. How do you?" How do you respond? Do you pass the buck? Do you take some responsibility? Having worked in telemarketing, and you also talk about not putting the onus on the musicians who are playing at that festival in Aspen. Not completely, but I don't, okay. I don't completely put the onus on the telemarketer either. Mm-hmm. That person is usually somebody who's just trying to get by, you know? And there's a tab, there's a booklet with tabs for responses. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee you there is not a Garrett tab in that book. <laughs> so you had him flummoxed. He did he's he's looking for the tab of like how do I talk to somebody who is concerned about the ratio of white to black composers we stage. There is not that tab. Okay, so, so a little bit of because he was just thinking that you were going to say yes or no. And I wasn't ugly. Like I wasn't mean to the man, but I'm just saying but but this is what and it is. And if he's not expecting that, of course he's going to it's going to it's going to have him backfiring. It's going to have him flummoxed. See, I'm going to have to call them back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna wait till business hours tomorrow and call them and say I talk with somebody about um, a, a donation. I need. To, I would like to continue the conversation. I, I'll hold. <laughs> Can you put him on the line, please? <laughs> anyway, oh, I just wanted to share. What would that. I say? What What was your question though? What would I oh, say yeah, if right. somebody responded like that? Yeah, I mean, how 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 would how would you even suggest Am traversing I- that? You're not in a position of of power as far as. What can happen, you know, on these stages or whatever? You're just calling the people. Are there words of encouragement or anything that you could offer me on the phone? And then what do you do after you get off the phone with me? Am I me and what I know and what I think, or am I this telemarketer? You're, let's say you're Gre- you, just for the sake of the conversation. Oh, let's 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 have the conversation, you know. And I feel like I might be able to go toe to toe with you for a moment or two, and then I would most certainly go to whoever I, I, I answer to, whoever the manager is, and go, here's empirical evidence of the need for change. Here's the, here, here's the real, the real, real coming through mm-hmm. on the phone. So point number one is, I know you can go toe to toe. It's really hard to ask someone who works for the Met to go toe to toe when they have staged Scott how many works by a black composer in One. their over 100 year history? One. 
So and and you have another one on the books, and I already told y'all I'm coming, and I told y'all that's the reason why I'm coming. Okay, so there's a part of the conversation that we can't have there because you really don't have anything to uh, uh, promise me. You you have no evidence to show that you know there there is something shifting. Um, but to your second point, I will affirm it is the duty of everyone to see these power structures that you're in and determine where you can reach up and say, see. Mm-hmm. I just talked to Garrett. As a matter of fact, hear his number. You call him then. <laughs> you call him. Don't ask me to call him back. You know, we have to we have to push the folks who are above us in any way to really make those adjustments based on our experiences. Because I forget the man's name right now. I think it's Peter Gelb, you know, who was sitting up there at the right. top of the Met. Right. See, he don't have to be on the phone with me. He's somewhere comfortable. While you are in your studio apartment doing the best you can, making these cold calls, begging me for $250. Now, this is not anything against that worker. But what I'm saying is you have a responsibility. You cannot say that you haven't been engaged in some way by the conversation of diversifying this stage. You can do something. If anything, pass that information along. And for those of us on the other side, we have to make sure that we're taking advantage to engage that conversation every second we have the opportunity. So if someone calls you asking for a donation, if you're a student and a teacher um, says something that you feel like you can push back on toward reframing classical music, toward decolonize it, you know, how wherever you exist in this field, you don't exist in the field at all. Okay, we'll call your local orchestra and say, what percentage of y'all's music is black? And if it's something pitiful, like 10%, 15%, I don't know. Maybe it'll help to put some some sauce on your uh, next statement. Well, do you not like black people <laughs> or black music or what? <laughs> what goes what what goes with that? I, I I challenge each and every one of you listening to do that in whatever way that you can just challenge that status quo and get somebody uh, on their toes. You know, maybe wake somebody up out of the malaise and monotony of of their everyday job by trying to inspire them to do something within these systems. Do it so that finally I can shut up and we'll and and, and we'll be here in this renewed ecosystem. And if you are a manager of a call center or any sort of fundraising arm, put a Garrett tab in your literature for your for your call center because i'm gonna tell you right now i work from home (laughs) and i have time (laughs) see you next week